Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about a concept in psychology, but I thought we should get there with a little bit of sci-fi story time. Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's uh, unearth one of the classics here to help us better understand this uh, really, I think, kind of intimidatingly named concept. Yeah, it's actually, I think, a fairly straightforward concept once you see it in the in the um, uh, context of a story. Yes. So gather ye round the fire and let me tell you a tale of how one day the Wayland commercial towing vessel, the USCSS Nostromo, was in transit returning a few million tons of ore from an off-world mining planet. I guess you recognize what this is now, Robert. Oh, this would be Ridley Scott's alien. Of course it is. So in the middle of its return journey, the crew of the Nostromo was awakened by a distress beacon emanating from a desolate, uninhabited, windswept planet with no indigenous life. So the ship unhitched from its cargo and it set down on the planet to investigate. Three officers, including the captain, Dallas, left the ship in EVA suits to locate the source of the distress call, leaving the warrant officer, Ellen Ripley, in charge of the vessel until their return. So she's in command now. And while the party is away, Ripley sits in a cold room, alone, breathing stale air, analyzing the distress signal from the beacon. And she begins to have a hunch that the signal is not actually a call for help, but a warning to stay away. After a few hours, the surface party returns with two crew members carrying a third member named Kane, who is unconscious. And the captain of the ship, Dallas, who was, again, he was a member of the away party, he asks Ripley to open the hatch and let them inside. And Ripley, she wants to ask a few questions first. She asks, what's wrong with Kane? Dallas tells her that he has something attached to him. Ripley asks, well, what is it? Dallas says it's some kind of organism, and he orders her to open the doors and let them in. Ripley refuses. She says it's against procedure to let an unknown organism on board, and Kane will have to be kept outside in quarantine for 24 hours. Dallas says Kane could die in 24 hours and tells her again to let them inside. Again, Ripley refuses, saying that the quarantine procedure must be obeyed. Furious, Dallas overrides her and then gets another crew member, Ash, played by Ian Holm, to use his authority as captain to have the doors opened anyway. They bring Kane inside and take him to Medical Bay, where Ian Holm waits. And of course, everything else in the film spirals out from this. Um, Ash, of course, uh, we, we later find out is, uh, is synthetic. He's an android. Yeah. And so he's, uh, he has some, some key programming and some key directives from the company uh, that are uh, influencing uh, uh, his excitement here as well. But I don't want to ask about Ash quite yet. I, I want to ask about Ripley and Dallas. In analyzing this scene, I just want to ask a couple questions about the characters' behaviors. Number one – why did Ripley refuse to let her crewmates back inside? And number two, why did Dallas override her? Now, you could answer these questions a million ways, right? But th there's one fundamental type of distinction you could make in the answers that we want to focus on today. And that's the distinction between explanations that appeal to circumstances and explanations that appeal to disposition or character. So some answers to these questions that could appeal to disposition. How about 
Ripley refused because she is inherently lawful and orderly. She obeys rules in general and appreciates that the procedures exist for a reason. That seems to, you know, you, you could characterize it like that, right? Yeah, as we'll discuss, I think that's a very easy characterization to make here. You could also say that she's calm under pressure. She's logical in working out the consequences of deviating from, from procedure. Uh, if you want to look at her less sympathetically, you could say that she refused to let her crewmates inside because she's cold-hearted or she's selfish or she lacks empathy. I never, I never would make those charges against Ripley. But someone could. Yeah, yeah, they could. Meanwhile, in also thinking about disposition and character, you could say that Dallas tried to override Ripley because he's rebellious and impulsive, because he thinks emotionally rather than rationally. You could say he did it because he was sexist and he didn't respect uh, Ripley's ruling because of her gender. You could say he did it because he was fundamentally caring and wanted to protect his injured crew member and get him medical attention as soon as possible. All these things are appealing to things about him as a person. Right. And, you know, I think it it lines up with the way we tend to watch him film like Alien anyway. Uh, you were talking, you mentioned the the, the stale air. Yeah. And uh, I had to, to hold back from jumping in and saying, well, I don't know. I never thought the air was stale on the Nostromo. <laughs> I always thought it would be like this, especially in those really pristine white settings, that it would have this, this, this rich, comforting smell of air conditioning, like a really well-air-conditioned house during the summer, uh, which for some reason is like a... Uh, something that I, I get kind of nostalgic for. I don't know. It looks stale to me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, you can almost kind of see a film on the surfaces in that uh, in that bridge room. Well, a little bit. But but at any rate, we, we tend to watch a film like Alien, and we focus on the characters, the monster, and then we we tend to pick up things about the setting and the environment. Secondly, uh, when if you're going to see somebody uh, that has that has written about Alien or uh, uh, they're probably going to be focusing on characters or monsters, mm-hmm. monsters biology. Uh, they're probably not as concerned with, uh, well, for starters, uh, you know, some of the aspects that we're going to be talking about here today. But those aspects, like like the environment, the setting, they are mm-hmm. crucial if you want to invoke the other kind of answer. You know, char- answers that do not appeal to character traits and dispositions, but answers that appeal to external factors and the details of the situation. So to answer the same questions according to these kinds of answers, you could say maybe Ripley refused entry because the quarantine rules exist and the way she's been conditioned as a be- an employee of this company is to treat them as inviolable. Right, and these are both external factors influencing her behavior in this read. Right, and maybe also it was because she felt uneasy on this hostile planet that nobody had ever been to before. She was put on guard by the suspicion that the distress beacon was a warning to stay away. Maybe she was even physically cold in the cabin of the ship, and this shifted her mood to make her more skeptical and wary. Because of all that air conditioning I was talking about earlier. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then you could do the same thing for Dallas. Maybe Dallas ignored her, tried to override her because he was in a unique and terrifying situation. He had a, a crew member with an alien attached to it, you know, d- attached to his face. That's not normal. This was completely novel and terrifying, causing him to panic. Maybe he ignored her because he'd been breathing heavily on his surface walk and was experiencing mild hyperventilation, and this was clouding his judgment. So this distinction is what we want to hammer home at the beginning here. It's, it's obvious that any time a person or a character in fiction takes an action or makes a choice, that choice is downstream of both the person and the situation. 
People have innate tendencies, but they're also constantly reacting to the unique circumstances of every moment. And this distinction between thinking in terms of disposition and thinking in terms of situation is the basis of today's episode, in which we'll be talking about a psychological phenomenon known as the fundamental attribution error, or FAE, or maybe we should just call it FAE, because I think that'll, that'll make today's talk easier. Yeah, this one is this one is is really interesting, and I I, I definitely encourage everyone to to stick with us because uh, I, I think this is one of those topics. That once you learn a little bit about, you're you're gonna you're gonna second guess in a good way uh, most of the the ways that you interact uh, with the with, with the world. I mean, the, the way that you judge uh, the reasoning behind uh, people's actions and choices. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps even beyond what people or animals are doing, but just how the world works. Yeah. Um, and, and I think Alien is a fun place to start with this. I mean, we, we could really just r- spend a lot of time um, geeking out here geeking yeah. out here about Alien and applying FAE to it. Like, for instance, we mentioned Ash, the, the android. You know, being a synthetic human, being created by humans, he's kind of a, a simplified model of what humans are. And even in him, we see this kind of conflicting thing. Like, is Ash uh, ultimately an antagonist in this film because of his internal programming, or is it more to do with that external command from the company? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so he's got – a robot is in a way like a human here. Robots have programming. They have internal uh, – kind of a nature to them. But then there are also external factors. There are the inputs they're reacting to. And then the xenomorph, uh, I mean, just it's in, purely from an environmental standpoint, uh, it uh, becomes a, a, ju- a juvenile and then a, ultimately an adult aboard this truly alien environment, on the, ab- aboard this massive spaceship created by uh, these strange uh, creatures that it's never encountered before. Yeah, I think that is one of the funny things about uh, the alien lore has come to incorporate elements that are almost as much inspired by the architecture of the Nostromo as a ship from the first movie mm-hmm. as from like the original idea of the alien's biology. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of its biology, it, this is not so much a plot point in the first film, but it becomes established that there's a, a hybrid nature to the xenomorph, that aspects of its biology are influenced by the host because it is, it, you know, it, it, it grows out of the host. It, it's born out of its host's death. Mm-hmm. And we, but we tend to focus just purely on the, the, the physical aspects of its being, like, oh, it, it came out of a dog or some sort of a quadruped, and so it's more quadrupedal in its movements and its, uh, in its uh, morphology. Mm-hmm. However, why not nature? Uh, what, are, there, are there perhaps aspects of its murderous nature in the film that, uh, that come as much from the murderous nature of the Homo sapiens that it has grown out of as well? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so the alien is kind of shaped like a man in the first movie because it comes out of Cain. It's Cain's son. Yeah, you know? so is, but it, is, it, is its is nature it, shaped like a man? Yes. Yeah. Is it also aggressive because it's in some way that the human uh, attributes are coming through? Yeah. I don't know. So, you know, this is all just food for thought, but this is the kind of rethinking that uh, that is that is that becomes possible when you start thinking about the fundamental attribution error. Yes, and, and I really do think that this is a really important concept that, that people should have in their in their toolkit, right? Mm-hmm. In, in fact, uh, one of the reasons I think I was inspired to talk about this was because a while ago I was reading on edge.org. Do you, do you ever read the stuff on their website? That they'll do a thing where they like ask one question to a whole bunch of different experts in different disciplines and everybody will give an answer to it. 
Uh, yeah, I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be interesting. So like in 2017, they asked the question, what scientific term or concept ought to be more widely known? And the American psychologist Richard Nisbet had an answer on the site where he said, "Okay, I think the thing that should be more widely known is fundamental attribution error. And I think he's exactly right. It's very useful for understanding the kind of judgment errors we make every single day, especially the kinds of errors that lead us to be unfair and make poor determinations about people and their character. So to define it succinctly, a fundamental attribution error, or I guess we'll be calling it Fay today, in Nesbitt's definition is, quote, overestimating the role of traits and underestimating the importance of situations. And I think this is yeah, this is very important, especially when we're considering, uh, you know, how stereotypes oh, yeah. are, are utilized, either consciously or subconsciously. Yeah, stereotypes really grow out of uh, out of FAE. So I, I think this definition he gives is a good one, but I do want to clarify that FAE doesn't only concern character traits; it also concerns other types of personal or internal dispositions, such as beliefs attitudes, abilities, and things like that. As we'll discuss in a bit, basically anything that is a permanent or semi-permanent part of a person rather than a transient effect of the circumstances the person is in. Yeah, I mean, and certainly the idea that uh, that there's a transient nature to – to our identities and to our mind states. I mean, that's something that we keep coming back again to again and again on the show for various uh, reasons. Like when we, when you know, when we break down how we think and how our minds work, um, yeah, this uh, this idea of there being this this permanent you just kind of uh, uh, fades away. Yeah. Another way of thinking about the same concept is, uh, so as we were discussing, a person's behavior at any given moment is determined both by their disposition and by their situation. But the FAE is specifically the fact that studies show we tend to overestimate how well their disposition will predict future behavior and we tend to underestimate how much their situation will predict future behavior. So exactly how badly miscalibrated are we? Well, I want to read apart from Nesbitt's answer uh, in, in the short article he has. He, and he's studied this bias in human thinking for many years. He says that, in fact, we are way, way off in our intuitions. Quote, In actual fact, when large numbers of people are observed in a wide range of situations, the correlation for trait-related behavior runs about 0.20 or less. People think the correlation is around 0.80. In reality, seeing Carlos behave more honestly than Bill in a given situation increases the likelihood he will behave more honestly in another situation from the chance level of 50% to the vicinity of 55 to 57%. People think that if Carlos behaves more honestly than Bill in one situation, the likelihood he'll behave more honestly than Bill in another situation is 80 <laughs> percent. So that's that, that's like hugely off the mark. Yeah, I mean it's ultimately not as useful as we think in predicting uh, um, how people around us are going to behave. Yeah. And likewise, I mean the reverse is true. Like do we want to be that miscategorized in our uh, in other people's judgment as well? Exactly. So I think maybe we should take a break and then when we come back we can look at a little bit of the research history on this subject. All right, we're back. Um, 
you know, we're not focusing as much on Alien uh, for the rest of this podcast, but we'll probably come back to Ripley and, oh, I'm uh, sure and crew we members. Yeah. And, uh, and a little later on, too, I'm going to get, of course, into a little Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, but first up, uh, we're going to turn uh, to uh, uh, some of the, um, uh, the key studies on FAE. Right. So to a uh, quick refresher on the concept, one way I found that I thought it was put very well was in a, a 2000 paper by uh, Nesbitt and uh, Noren Zion where they say that the, the fundamental attribution error, quote, refers to people's inclination to see behavior as the result of dispositions corresponding to the apparent nature of the behavior. This tendency often results in error when there are obvious situational constraints that leave little or no role for dispositions in producing the behavior. That So, like, even when we should be aware of what the conditions and the situations causing the behavior are, we just sometimes fail to take that into account. And this first study I want to mention is, is an example of this. So this first study was in 1967 by Edward E. Jones and Victor A. Harris called The Attribution of Attitudes in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. So what happened here? Robert, imagine you are a test subject. I invite you to come into a room and read an essay that I tell you is written by a student on a debate team to be delivered as an opening statement in competition. And I tell you that the topic of the speech is whether or not marijuana should be legalized. And the student who wrote the speech was randomly assigned the role of being either for or against legalization. So you read the speech. Uh, let's say it is for legalization of marijuana. It makes a bunch of arguments. It says, you know, uh, if we legalize marijuana, we will cut down on unfair, harmful uh, outcomes, you know, unfair disparities in incarceration, on organized crime and things like that. You know, it makes all the arguments you'd expect. And then I ask you, what do you think is the debate team member's actual personal view on the legalization of marijuana? Well, that's going to – this is going to be kind of tricky. I mean, for starters, I know where all this is going. Yeah. I mean, part of me also thinks that this depends on what your your personal history is with, say, debate, with being assigned essays of this nature. Mm. I mean, I, I certainly uh, was assigned papers like this uh, uh, growing up, you know, where you had to uh, – you were just given a side of a particular issue and then you had to uh, discuss the uh, supporting arguments for it. Right. I mean, that's a good way to hone your, like, persuasive writing skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you'd ask people, what do you think the person's actual opinion is? The mere fact that they wrote an essay in favor of legalization, in fact, it doesn't tell you anything here because you know that their position was assigned randomly. So to answer, I don't know what you do. You might look for little tells in the language like uh, – but if they're a good writer, then that wouldn't really come through, right? Uh, but really, you just wouldn't know. But I think if we're all honest, if we weren't put on guard by th- by this coming up in the context of this episode, mm-hmm. right, I think we would mostly be tempted to assume that the writer more likely shared the view that they were expressing in this speech. And this study by Jones and Harris in 1967 found that more often than not, people tended to assume a writer actually privately held the beliefs that they were expressing. Uh, another example in the study was being pro or anti-Fidel Castro. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they assume this even when they're told that the writer had been randomly assigned a position to take. 
So I, I can, you know, tell you that uh, Jeffrey here is about to say that Fidel Castro is great, but I told him he had to say that. Mm-hmm. And then he comes out and he says Fidel Castro is great. And uh, and I ask you, now, do you think he actually thinks Fidel Castro is great? People are more likely to say, yeah, yeah, I think maybe he does. Right. When You have like no reason to believe that at all. But of course, the, the core consideration here is not the judgment of um, of personal essays and whatnot uh, or debate team arguments. Right. Like this is getting at, uh, at, at more everyday manifestations of FAE. Oh, sure. I just want to be clear on that in case anyone's like, well, why aren't we talking about uh, essays about Fidel Castro? Well, this because this is th- this early indication that people are ignoring crucial situational information mm-hmm. in judging a person's mind state and their character. Uh, so pe- people can take situation into account to some degree, but they naturally tend to give situation way less credit than makes sense and give disposition more credit than makes sense. In the words of the authors here, quote, the main conclusion suggested – is that perceivers do take account of prior probabilities and situational constraints when attributing private attitude, but perhaps do not weight these factors as heavily as would be expected by a rational analysis. And so there has been a ton of other research over the years that has found similar things, like uh, Corin in 1993 found that when a professor discusses an idea or a belief in a classroom lecture, students tend to assume that the professor personally holds that belief or agrees with that idea. Uh, I think a great example here would be like Freudianism because you really can't talk about the history of psychology without talking about Freud and yet nobody should just like take Freud's word as like science on psychology these days. So if a professor in psychology class brings up Freud on some other subject, the professor will probably think, I'm giving the students historical context on this topic. But the students may be more likely to think that the professor is mentioning a view because they advocate or they agree with it. They're assuming it's part of the professor's disposition. And I, you know, I've taught ret comp classes before in which students, they have to learn to write persuasively. And in order to teach this, obviously, uh, you know, to help students improve their work, you have to question and find flaws in whatever argument the student is making, even if you personally agree with whatever thesis they're arguing. And I remember there could be this tendency for students to assume that if you're interrogating their work in this way, it's because you actually personally disagreed with them. (laughs) Or in a more general case, there's a tendency for students to assume that their grades on papers are a direct unfolding of internal or dispositional qualities in the teacher. Professor so-and-so is really mean, uh, she's really strict, etc., as opposed to external factors like there are high standards in this class or the paper I wrote had problems with it. Now, that's not to say there aren't some terrible teachers out there that could uh, be be making these judgments based on this criteria. But uh, but but this, you're talking about the the tendency to misjudge the situation. Yes, though I mean I think I, I'd guess most of the time you think you got a bad grade because your professor is mean. You're probably wrong about that. <laughs> well, I've been watching a lot of Harry Potter films recently, oh. <laughs> so that you know I'm I, now I see what's yeah, happening. Yeah, so uh, that's that's where my mind is going. Well, uh, that that that's a funny thing because one interesting thing is that FAE seems to me to be necessary for fiction. 
Like if you have a scene introducing a character, you generally have to assume that the character's behavior in that scene should be characteristic. In other words, it should give the audience a good idea of that character's personality and traits. Like if you wrote an opening scene in your screenplay uh, where a character was behaving uncharacteristically and just according to certain situational factors, like Brian Cox as Bob McKee, the screenwriting guru, Mm -hmm. he'd yell at you, you know. From the adaptation. Yeah, yeah, he'd say that's confusing. It's inefficient writing. You should avoid it. I guess unless you're like deliberately trying to set up some kind of ironic reversal, like it's a comedy or something. Mm -hmm. But even then, it can be kind of problematic. Speaking of Harry Potter, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but there is uh, one major character that is eventually introduced, and then you find out, oh, that was never that real character at all. That was somebody else pretending to be that character. Um, And in, in retrospect, that can be a little confusing if you think on it too much. Yeah, I guess that is. And then in terms of like, you know, determining the, um, you know, essentially the alignment of a character. I mean, in Harry Potter, too, you have the whole deal with the sorting hat. What what criteria is the sorting hat taking into account? Is it, yeah. it's, it's on your skull, so I guess it's focusing on the contents of your head. Uh-huh. Uh, but is it taking into account the, the situational um, uh, details of your scenario? I mean, I guess characters do in good writing become more complex over time as you become more familiar with them. But I think it's, it's it would just generally be assumed to be bad writing to introduce a character in a way in which they're behaving really uncharacteristically hmm. for themselves. I mean, you want to show off early on what people are like. And I guess this is all simply because you assume audiences will commit the FAE with respect to characters. You see a character behave one way one time, you assume this is indicative of that character's fun fundamental dispositions, their beliefs, traits, values, abilities, attitudes, and not just some situation they're in. Well, this is interesting. We should come back to this because uh, I, I think this is, this is even more interesting the more we discuss FAE. Okay, another study from uh, 1979 this time by Napolitan and uh, Gerthels called The Attribution of Friendliness. This did something kind of like the the essays thing except they just had people meet. They had, you mm-hmm. know, you'd meet somebody and you get to decide is this person friendly or unfriendly? Uh, fundamentally, is, the, is their personality friendly or unfriendly? Now, some of the people in the study who you were getting to meet had been told that they were supposed to act unfriendly. And then the people and the, the the participants were told, oh, this person has been told they need to act unfriendly. And yet some of the participants would actually rate the person as fundamentally unfriendly, even though they'd been told by experimenters that the person had been assigned this behavior pattern. Uh, and I guess it's sort of like assuming that an actor who plays a villain in a movie is actually a bad person. <laughs> you know, there's a certain logic to it. Like when you've seen somebody play a villain in a movie, you can understand what it would look and feel like for them to actually be a bad person. With somebody else, it might be harder for you to picture this. Yeah. But yeah, I, I can tell you I've instructed Jeffrey to be a sourpuss when he talks to you. Uh, then you talk to Jeffrey and you say, how do you think Jeffrey normally is? People are like, yeah, he's actually a sourpuss. But there was an interesting turn here that was fairly simple. Subjects were less likely to make the fundamental attribution error uh, and assume that that one data point was indicative of a person's real disposition if they got to interact with the same person twice. 
So you meet Jeffrey once and you're told that he's been instructed to act like a jerk. You conclude he's actually a jerk. You meet Jeffrey once and he's friendly. Then you meet him again and you're told he's been instructed to act like a jerk. You're more likely the second time to think, oh, this isn't really how he is. He's just acting out the part. Now, this obviously seems related to the general finding that the better we know a person, the more we take into account situational information to explain their behaviors, and the less we know a person, the more likely we are to resort to dispositional reasoning. You're probably at the highest risk to commit the FAE when evaluating a stranger or somebody mm. you're meeting for the first time. Yeah, I mean, well, this gets down to the basic fact, you know, the importance of uh, first impressions, right? Yeah. Uh, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. But you do get a first chance to make a second impression and, and so <laughs> forth. Uh, but, but yeah, you got to count on that second impression taking place. Uh, yeah, I think we can all – I mean, we all can turn to examples in our own life where we, we either know we made a good first impression or uh, more likely we know that we didn't. Yeah. Uh, those are the ones we tend to remember. Um, I, I know I've been I, – I think I, people have told me before that I, I uh, sometimes – uh, you know, come off as like less friendly or colder in first impressions. And a lot of that comes from me being more of an introvert, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just uh, how I uh, – I'm a little more um, um, uh, reserved when I'm meeting people for the first time, you know. Um, but, but then again, all of this is pointing to stuff that we all know, right, that – you meet somebody for the first time, that first handshake is not going to magically convey to you everything you need to know about that person. But we it, still we kind of it assume anyway. it does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, goodness, handshakes. Just speaking of, of that, like the ridiculousness yeah. of judgments based on handshakes, which, which by the way, this, would, this is something we could cover in a, a later episode. But, not firm enough. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that that is also very cultural at times, though. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and uh, – and it's not something that's necessarily like known. Mm -hmm. uh, if if you're shaking the hands of a person from a culture where a lighter handshake is more appropriate, mm -hmm. uh, you're just going to judge them based on your handshake culture. When you th in which you know could lean more towards the importance of that firm handshake or something that is lighter uh, in touch. But yeah, we can make all sorts of ridiculous generalizations without wanting to or realizing just based on something like that. Well, I think some of the good news about the FAE is that this does seem like one of those biases where being aware of it makes a difference, like that you can overcome this bias with some cognitive mm -hmm. effort. And we'll talk more about that as we go on. Um, just like thinking about the fact that, oh, yeah, uh, the, the circumstances of my first impression of a person might not actually be a reflection, you know, a deep reflection of who they are. That can be useful in, in changing the way we think about people. There was another interesting thing I was thinking about in uh, fundamental attribution error and it's how every time – you you, know, you notice this. Every time there's like a mass murderer or a terrorist or a serial killer who gets uh, – their identity gets revealed, what happens like most of the time is they go interview this guy's neighbors and coworkers and they express shock. He was normal, quiet. He was always nice to me. It's like they tend to assume that if it was within a person's nature to commit horrible crimes, the taint of evil should have been evident within everyday interactions. But why should it have been? Like this also seems to me an assumption based on the FAE. Oh, absolutely. I mean this – of course, we could go, go crazy discussing this, how we – when somebody does something monstrous – we want to interpret their entire um, identity as as monstrous, yeah. and and as less human as possible. I mean, there and there, there are advantages in doing that, right? It feels less dangerous, yeah. And you feel and you feel less um, 
in danger from from uh, misjudging people in the future. Yes, you want to feel like you would have been able to pick them out immediately. Yeah, I think that's why we tend to. Um, I mean, just think of the, the sort of the Wikipedia page photos of, say, serial killers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they tend to run in either direction, right? Either it's a really charming picture, um, but but uh, you know, the, to maybe sort of drive home how oh wow, we never saw that coming, or they they pick something that is suitably monstrous, be it the uh, you know the the John Wayne Gacy uh, uh, clown photo, or uh, you know a, a particularly snarling. Uh, um, uh, image of uh, Ted Bundy, that sort of thing. Yes, the the more monstrous and inhuman and scary they look in their media photos, mm-hmm. the more comforting it is to us because we're we're less troubled by the idea that they could blend in with your life and you wouldn't know about them. Right. Uh, you know, this is this this reminds me a little bit of our photography uh, episodes on the on invention, our other uh, podcast that we put together, mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking about you know, the advantages of capturing truth and an essence mm-hmm. uh, of a situation or perhaps an individual through photography. But the thing about photography is they are snapshots. They are moments. Uh, and our, even just our facial features are something that is uh, in flux, that's, uh, is, uh, that's you know, versed and uh, that's grounded in micro expressions and, uh, and, and, and momentary uh, uh, expressions. Mm-hmm. And therefore, yeah, if you have enough footage of somebody and you have enough range in their reactions, you can find the saintly Ted Bundy picture. You can find uh-huh. the handsome Ted Bundy picture and you can find the snarling and monstrous Ted Bundy pictures as well. And you can do this for anyone, uh, any politician, any actor, any individual. Uh, as long as you have enough data to pull from. Well, in fact, I'd even go maybe to the level of hypothesizing a correlation, which is that I think a lot of particularly monstrous people spend plenty of time homing their photogeneity. Mm, that's a good point. Is that the word, photogeneity? They, they practice being photogenic and they get good at it. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Okay, I want to pivot to one interesting wrinkle in the FAE, which is that multiple studies have shown there's a very salient exception to the fundamental attribution error tendency, ourselves. Hmm. On average, while we're more likely to overestimate disposition and underestimate situation in interpreting the behavior of other people, we're likely to do exactly the opposite when that great eye is turned inward. When explaining our own personal behavior, we tend to overestimate the role of situational factors and underestimate the role of internal factors like our inherent character traits and abilities and attitudes. There are also studies indicating a self-serving bias within the existing FAE bias uh, and, its, and its reversal in the self. In other words, if I did something good, that there's a dispositional explanation there. It's because of something about me. Mm-hmm. If I did something bad, it's because of something about the situation I was in. There's a situational explanation. We've all observed this in others, right? The way people make excuses when they do something bad mm-hmm. and think it's a fundamental part of their their own virtues when they do something good. But if we're sufficiently critical, of course, we we know that notice this in ourselves as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly it's a worthwhile exercise to be able or willing to to flip uh, that in our own self-analysis, like yeah. how much of the the good that I've done is uh, a product of environment and how much of the bad uh, is uh, is correspondingly, uh, you know, a product of, uh, of more ingrained aspects of my uh, identity. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was thinking it's the classic hypocrisy 
that you see come through so often when people are considering justifications for help or aid or relief? Like how commonly have you heard the sentiment, you know, other people collect unemployment because they're lazy. I collect unemployment because I had a really rough year and I lost my job. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got circumstantial explanations. Other people, there's something wrong with them. Right. This hypocrisy also comes through in an extremely common uh, phenomenon when people are faced with like a debate or a disagreement about something. Just keep an eye out for this when you're reading your next Twitter argument. Uh, <laughs> my position is dictated by the facts, while your position is a result of psychological facts about you. In other words, my position is the result of external situational constraints like the facts and the rules of logic and all that. And your position is the result of internal dispositional characteristics of you as a person, your emotional tendencies, your biases, etc. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, we do see we see a lot of this in uh, in current discourse. Uh, like, for instance, um, when one is reminded to think about one's um, uh, place of privilege in any given topic, yeah. like that is essentially uh, kind of coming back to what I was was talking about. Like thinking about uh, you know if if you stop and think about say the the good in one's life and think about how much of that is environmental and situational. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's it's a worthwhile exercise, uh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, well, consideration of the privileges one has received is exactly asking people to consider is to ask them to think about the the opposite of the FAE that we tend to apply to ourselves. Right. Yeah, to like ask people to consider situational factors they have benefited from, rather than thinking that all of their you know all of the good things that have happened to them are due to their virtues and greatness. Right. But uh, in the in the case of like you know arguments about like attributing your opinions to your psychology and my opinions to my you know, just to how things are, it's it's just hilarious how often you see this deployed in arguments today. My opinion isn't even really my opinion; it's just the way the world is. It's fully externalized. Your opinion is a direct unfolding of your personal <laughs> defects. Yeah, you see it all the time, and you know from uh, from various sides. But back to so you know you've got the opposite of the fundamental attribution error taking place when we evaluate ourselves, I wonder why is this? Like, why do we reverse the bias when the eye is turned inward? I think one thing is just that we have the opportunity to observe ourselves in lots of scenarios, and we come to understand that our behavior changes according to the situation. Obviously, and this seems in line with the fact that the better you know a person, the more you get to sample their behavior, the Mm -hmm. more you take situation into account when you're judging them. Right. And then I guess I mean it makes sense that that we would we would have we would employ shortcuts in uh, in 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 figuring out or guessing the the mind states of others, you know that we uh, it, I mean we we would love to think of ourselves as the kind of person who is so compassionate that every minor character in their life is is given full weight and full consideration, mm-hmm. but we don't have time. We don't have time. We don't have the mental capacity to do that. So we end up. We've evolved to uh, to utilize all these shortcuts, uh, which in many cases can be rather unfair and in some cases perhaps even dangerous. Oh, they can be extremely dangerous and one reason is that – 
some studies have shown that this concept gets extended beyond just the individual level. Like there are some studies indicating that both the FAE and the self-directed reversal of the FAE extend beyond individuals to groups. In other words, people are more likely to lean toward dispositional explanations for people they see as outgroup members and situational explanations for people they see as in-group members. If you see people as part of your tribe, part of your group, you're more likely to treat them like you treat yourself, meaning you, you know, take into factor, okay, you know, there are external influences on what they're doing. And if you see people as outside your tribe, you're more likely to take their actions as indications of their fundamental character or of the fundamental characteristics you believe common to their group. And all of this is, of course, terrible if you want there to be any kind of actual communication between two given tribes, between two given given groups, if you want there to be any kind of uh, uh, peace, stability, or back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see how this exact bias lies behind all kinds of you know, problems of, of prejudice and stereotyping mm-hmm. and, uh, and all that. Uh, but interestingly, on the other hand, th- there are some studies that indicate that s- in some cases at least, simply manipulating perspective through video feeds can reverse the effect, mm-hmm. at least on an individual level. So think about it like this. If you watch video of a scene taken from another person's visual perspective, so you're seeing through Jeffrey's eyes or you're seeing through Ripley's eyes, mm-hmm. you are more likely to judge that person situationally and less likely to judge them dispositionally than you would if you're just watching them from a third-person vantage point. Okay. And the, the reverse also appears to be true in watching video of yourself from a third-person perspective. It makes you more likely to judge yourself dispositionally. Interesting. Uh I feel like we've touched on some of these differences in like third and first person. I believe there's some studies that look at this in video gaming mm-hmm. and, and how we uh, interact with a, a, our given character's avatar. Yeah. Which is especially interesting when we think of games where we're, we have the ability to jump back and forth between the two. Yeah. But the idea of, of being able to apply this viewpoint to your own life and the lives of others, which has a wonderful kind of black mirror vibe to it. Uh-huh. Um, uh, th- that's interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it is. And I didn't find a study on this. Maybe there is one I just didn't come across. But I wondered, can the can the effect be reversed through perspective manipulation for group-based thinking as well? Hmm. Like, are there ways – I mean, it, this in a way would be the, the classic, like, try to put yourself in yeah, somebody shoes, else's yeah. shoes. Like, can you see the world from the perspective of somebody who you regard as your out-group? And would that help in reducing, you know, the kind of dispositional automatic uh, attributing of characteristics to them that you do off very limited data? Uh, by the way, I I had to explain that uh, saying, uh, uh, you know, wearing somebody else's shoes, walking a mile in someone else's shoes to my son. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess for the first time, I guess it, it had just not come up before. But then I dropped it in some, you know, daily conversation and he was like, what? What? what we're supposed to wear other people's shoes? <laughs> like, how does that even work? It's like, and it is kind of weird. Like, if I wear someone else's shoes, there there's so many factors. Like, that, that, that's not going to really give me any idea what they're – their personal experiences, their personal truth, or their, you know, what kind of uh, uh, of, uh, of constraints and privileges they're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, it really should be walk a mile in somebody else's Google Glass. Like, <laughs> what yeah. is the, That'll be the new thing. Like, yeah. Filming from their perspective. Yeah. I don't know what the real product there now is. Walk a mile in somebody else's GoPro. <laughs> yes. All right. We're going to go ahead and close out the episode right now because we're going to have to split this one in two. Uh, We're going a bit long here. So this was uh, 
part one of our look at FAE, but our next episode will continue the discussion, and uh, and I'll make sure we get some Dungeons and Dragons in there just to just to continue the uh, uh, the the partial focus on the fantastic elements to keep the big cat magic going. Yeah, we got to do it. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to go: stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the website. You can get the show there, but you can also get the show any number of other places. Wherever you do uh, uh, get Stuff to Blow Your Mind, make sure that you have subscribed and make sure that you've uh, rated and reviewed the show because these uh, small steps help us out immensely in the long run. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.